Hi everyone, George Garner here. So I'm recording this from my closet in my home. We're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and it's a new world for many of us and it's come on pretty suddenly. My routine of going into the Civil Rights Heritage Center, of greeting our student workers and staff, doing my work, getting ready for events and sharing our history, that's all changed. I'm staying home, as you should be too if you're in a position to do so. Fortunately, my job is secure, my family is safe, and all of us at the center are working from home. But even with that privilege, I'll admit to feeling a little lost during this time, and you may be too. Uh, luckily, we had new episodes of South Bend's own words and the works before the pandemic, and this time at home has given me the chance to start working on them. So we'll release them in a more aggressive schedule than usual to give you another way to keep connecting with us. And that's why I'm recording this message. One, just to have an outlet to say what I'm feeling, but also to ask you, what can we do for you? How does the CRHC continue to do the work we do during these times? Events at the center are such a pivotal part of what we do, and creating that space for people to engage in meaningful conversation against racism, sexism, and all of the isms that impact people's lives. If you have a thought on how we can continue to engage, or maybe if you just want to say hi, please do so. Go to crhc.iusb.edu and find our contact information. Call the center and leave us a voicemail. Or email me and Daryl Heller just to let us know how you are and what you think we can do during these hard times. I'm staying home, I'm staying safe, and I'm staying mostly occupied. And I hope you're doing the same. And I hope this episode of South Bend's Own Words makes a connection with you. That it teaches you something new, gives you a new insight into a person from our community, or it just gives you something interesting to listen to for 15 minutes. I hope you enjoy it. Go back into South Penn's history. 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, and what do you see? You see groups of people working to bring change to this city. They had different ideas of what that change should be. They didn't always agree. Yet, in every decade, there were groups of people for whom positive change was their life's work. This podcast, South Penn's Own Words, features the voices of people who helped make this city change. We'll play selections from the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center's oral history collection to tell you a more complete history of the city. It's the story of many cultures, not just one. It's the story of South Bend. Bishop Donald L. Alford is a staple along South Bend's Western Avenue. He's the founder and pastor of Pentecostal Cathedral Church of God in Christ, and also the founder and owner of Alfred's Mortuary. A lifelong resident of South Bend, Bishop Alfred graduated from Washington High School in 1957. In 2007, Bishop Alfred sat down with Indiana University South Bend professor Les Lehman and student Sarah Lowe. They talked about Bishop Alfred's life and his work, and the changes he's seen along Western Avenue over many decades. Yes, I was born here in South Bend, went to Benjamin Harrison School. For the eight years, you have to go to elementary and junior high, and then went to Washington High School, graduated from Washington High School in 1957. And then I went on to Bethel College and was there for a couple of years, and then went on to Warsham, 
College of Mortuary Science, where I got my degree in mortuary science. Came back to South Bend in 1961 after completing my schooling. Uh, got married in 1961, so then I began to get involved in things in the community slowly. But by the late 60s and early 70s, I was very much involved in community, in AACP, Urban League, those types of events. And then, of course, for a short period, was the president of the South Bend branch for NAACP. I began pastoring the Pentecostal Cathedral Church in 1972. And uh, I continued to expand my work in the community, served on several boards, such as the Hearing and Speech Board, Big Brothers, Board of the YMCA, uh, and, and some others that I can't really just think of right this moment. But I was the first black person in South Bend, Indiana, to be hired at the South Bend Public Library. I was hired in 1956, I believe. Was that through the co-op program in Washington, or was yes. that just... The South Bend Public Library called all the librarians within the high school. And see, very few blacks would join things like that, but I was, I was a part of the library club. So, of course, the librarian, they called that day. She sent two of us down, a white, white boy and myself. And they said, uh, they would like for someone to come down after school for an interview. Well, the white kids just went right from school. I asked them, could I go home and change? I went home, put on a shirt and tie, and I, I never will forget my mother's comments. My mother's comments were, it's not necessary for you to do all that. You're not going to get hired down there. That was her comments. I said, whether I get hired or not, I want to wear a shirt and tie. Can I get hired? But on lunch break, you go downtown, and you didn't see white blacks working in clothing stores, at that back in '55, what you saw the blacks doing was running the elevator, or in uh, they had a five and dime store, Kresge's, where you ate. They would work behind the kitchen counter. The Robinson was a very fashionable store, and on the sixth floor they had what was called the tea room. Blacks never went in there to other than to serve. Them. Because they weren't allowed to, or because they had no interest. Or? There, there was a certain area that we just knew we didn't go. And unless you were a rebel, you didn't even try to go. I remember very vividly that Kresge's, well, that was next to Robinson. See, the blacks had to sit in the, they had a long counter. The blacks always sat at the back counter. And I never forget, and I don't know her name, right? one late, one day, one lady sat up front and they asked her to move. She said, oh, I'm not moving. And that was in the and they And they served her? They may not have served her, or they may have served her after a commotion. It was enough to make the papers and things. I think it has changed over the years because after the riots, I think whites were willing to let blacks, well, they could have all those old buildings. <laughs> they could have all of those. So that's when blacks begin to get opportunities. And there's always been programs that will let you have just enough to, I say, to hurt yourself. <laughs> In early 70s, 
I was applying for an SBA loan. They sent me to First Source, and I, I was befriended by a fellow named Mike Bailey. And he says, look, he looked at my sequence of work, and he says, why don't you come work for the bank? So I began to work at the bank. I started, and I was the second. There was only one other fellow before me that was the branch manager. Who was that? His name was Watson. Watkins. Charles Watkins. Now, he was the first black manager of the Sample Street branch. Okay. And, and uh, when they hired me, I became an assistant manager at Western Avenue branch. Uh, several branches. And that was mid-70s? Mid-70s, and I worked up until after the new building was built downtown. And when did you stop working for First Source? I can't remember. In the 80s. In the 80s. So what I'm hearing you say is that actually business opportunities improved. Don't seem to be too many out there now. You see, when I graduated in 1957. Most of the young ladies that graduated in, say, 54 to, like, I'd say, to about 60, you graduated from high school, and the most you could do probably is get a job at the local hospital in the housekeeping. Mm -hmm. If you were aggressive and maybe every once in a while with a high school diploma, you might be able to get a job as a receptionist somewhere, but very few. And by the 90s, the culture of minorities changed because you got, you began to get a lot of young parents and our morals weren't as quite as high. And of course, I think the black community always imitate the white community. Whatever they do, they want to do, you know. So that's, that's just me, the way I feel. So therefore, the culture of black America changed and it was popular to be dumb than to be smart. So, uh, and, and we're, we're, we're trying to move away from that. We haven't moved away from that. You think that may account for people not being taking advantage of, taking the advantage advantage of opportunities? opportunities. But to do, to be in business. To be in business, to further their career, to, you know, further their education. Just, I don't want to push this too far because there are other things we want to talk about, but if you had to say from a, from a racial perspective, what were the main issues facing you as a black businessman? As a black businessman, not just a businessman. Well, you certainly could not get loans from the bank. You could not get that. And I think the other thing that faced me as a black, you didn't get a lot of mentors. There were several mentor programs where retired people would retire from being uh, managing a factory or something, and you could sign up to have one of these mentors come and analyze. I never forget, I did that one time. Well, what, what percent of your businesses African American. All of it. 100%. Yeah. The only, the only white business I do is, my name is Alford A, a funeral director in 
let's say Oklahoma has a person that dies here and they need to ship them to Oklahoma. They look in their book and they go to Alfred. They call Alfred. That's the first one in the book and says, can you pick up my loved one? I do quite a few whites. One question that Dr. Lehman brought up to me that I thought was interesting about desegregation, when that began, did you see a change at all? Did, that, did you see that that contributed to a change in the way black businesses were patronized? In, in the well, way black businesses are, or the way blacks were patronized white businesses? Yeah. Sure, because as the door opened, Blacks that had spunk, they just went because they knew they could. They could. In 1961, when I married, I would never sit in front of Crestus. But by 1968, especially right after the riots, you know, I'd sit anywhere I wanted to sit. And then after the riots, so what they really did was open the counter up and all Crestus that's my Crestus had to go out. But we, we just took we just took the whole counter. <laughs> well did white stop patronizing mm-hmm. then? Yeah, they, they, they. what impact did that have on some of the small there were a lot of small black restaurants or small black grocery stores and, I mean I'm thinking over on, on Birdsell and Liston, that area across the other side of the track. Well See, what my dad would do is offer credit to all these people that live in all those homes around us. And they'd come to our store and they could do that where they couldn't go up on Western Avenue to the grocery stores up there and have credit. To reliable blacks, they would offer credit to. But I think what happened is as whites, you know, like A&P, blacks began to go more after those other stores closed, then they just would go to A&P and the economy of it, you know. Get cheaper prices. Get cheaper prices and, you know, yeah. it just it probably forced us out of it. And same thing with... For restaurants? Uh-huh. My wife and I would go to the Robinson Tea Room. Mm-hmm. That was always really nice to go there. <laughs> and you would never have dared do that before. Let's shift gears a minute and talk, because I mentioned to you and I've given you some material I found in Washington about yes. the NAACP. Just from your involvement in the in the NAACP and, and a stint there in the leadership, you know, why has the local branch been only sort of sporadically effective and active? Well, let me tell you, the NAACP, the Urban League, is just like any other black business in America. It's harder for us to make it because we have to get our, the bulk of our revenue from us. And we don't, the blacks just don't have the same revenue that the whites have. Now there's always been those whites that were somewhat sympathetic to the program and they would be donors or sponsors and you could always go to them for a sizable amount. And that's where our, that, that's, I believe is our biggest problem. Is that as Black America, we have not learned how to fund our projects. So you would say that one of the reasons that it was only sporadically effective, and it was effective mm-hmm. from time to time, was divisions within the NAACP. I think the crisis has always caused Black America to step up to the plate. We respond 
more on fixing something after it is open rather than looking ahead mm -hmm. and preparing for the day that this crisis will come. So I think the NAACP, the Urban League in, in our community have been mostly effective when there have been a battle to fight. And that's the history of the NAACP anyway, in our country, to fight the battle. South Bend's Own Words was created by Kevin Tidmarsh and me, George Garner. This episode was produced by Mark Flora and me, the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center. Visit us and learn how IU South Bend students inspired the transformation of a once segregated South Bend swimming pool. We give guided tours and offer public events that show how the history of oppression echoes through this city today. See and hear more history, plan your visit, or share your thoughts about this episode, all at crhc.iusb.edu.